The Wainwright Prize, the stories behind the books, brought to you by PlanetPod. Welcome to this special edition of PlanetPod with me, Amanda Carpenter, celebrating the 2020 Wainwright Prize for nature writing and writing on global conservation. We are delighted to be partnering with Wainwright to bring you the stories behind the books with our interviews with this year's shortlisted authors. The Wainwright Prize was founded in 2014 in memory of Alfred Wainwright by Francis Lincoln, the publishers of the famous fell walking series, The Pictorial Guides to the Lakeland Fells. There is a strong link between walking and writing, whether it's striding out across the fells or meandering through woodland, the very act of walking seems to unlock and release creativity. What better way to celebrate and commemorate that most famous of walkers than through this prize? This year's prize has been extended to include a second category for books about global conservation and climate change, and the two shortlists reflect the breadth and range of contemporary nature writing, both in the UK and around the world. Life-Changing, How Humans Are Altering Life on Earth by Helen Pilcher considers the many ways that we have altered the DNA of living things and changed the fate of life on Earth. As our global dominance grows and we warm our world and radically reshape the biosphere, we affect the evolution of all living things near and far, from the emergence of novel hybrids such as the pizzly bear to the entirely new strains of animals and plants evolving at breakneck speed to cope with their altered environment. Helen's description of how our species have been on a collision course spanning roughly 300,000 years of history with the rest of life on Earth is not only intensely serious and richly entertaining. As one critic said, Helen is both very funny and very, very clever. We're absolutely delighted to be able to welcome her to Planet Pod. Helen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Can I start by asking you, how did the book come about? Because it's a really huge topic um, and obviously one of an immense sort of scientific interest and seriousness, but you've treated it with, um, you know, what appears to be a light hand. But where did it come from? What, what made you write it in the first place? Well, so I, I suppose going back, I've always been interested in the natural world. I was really into fossils when I was a kid, really into wildlife, um, became a scientist when I grew up. Uh, did research into stem cell biology. Um, so I've always been interested sort of in the natural world and how it's changing and the tools that have been emerging that now help us to sculpt that process. And a couple of years ago, my first book came out called Bring Back the King, which was all about de-extinction. And de-extinction is the ability of scientists to bring extinct animals back to life. So things like uh, the woolly mammoth, the passenger pigeon, there are about a dozen projects ongoing out there looking at this. Um, and uh, in that book, I also looked at whether or not it was possible to bring Elvis Presley back, hence the title Bring Back the King. But that's another story. Um, but the, the book made me think, look, if, if this is becoming possible, if we are reaching a, a time where actually we can change this dogma that extinction is forever, if, if we're on the cusp of being able to do that, which we are, what else are we capable of? So it made me think about all the ways that humans are and have been shaping evolution across time um, and how we are altering life on Earth, both at a very local scale mm -hmm. with the animals that we can, we can touch and engineer, you know, literally, and at a global scale with the changes that we exert as a, a species through our collective actions. Um, 
And so, yeah, it, it's taken me on a very, very big and broad journey, encompassing a whole different range of elements, uh, sort of leading me to the conclusion that, you know, humans are changing all life on Earth now, and that that's something we need to think about pretty seriously. I mean, and that's a huge responsibility for us as a species, isn't it? Because it's it, we are totally out of step in many cases with the world around us. Um, but just going back to that, I mean, d- this sense of actually being able to physically change the genetic makeup of species. I mean, it's it, it's a powerful tool, but it's a terrifying tool, isn't it? Because we could do irrevocable harm to the natural world in that way. It is. But I think what's really interesting about this is that people do get very, very anxious about the prospect of GM and deliberately, specifically altering the DNA of life on Earth. And with good reason, this is not a technology to be wielded lightly. But in fact, and this is what the book does, in fact, if you look back over the history of time, what we've actually been doing is genetically modifying life on Earth for the last 30,000 years. So uh, your viewers won't be able to see this, but they can picture it. So slumbering at my feet at the moment is my genetically modified wolf. And um, he he's quiet at the moment, but he may start howling and making noises. And he is uh, a product of, of this genetic modification. So so in other words, he's a dog, right? So dogs are descended from wolves. And we may not have sort of picked up um, a pipette and a lab and donned a white coat in order to change his genetic makeup. But actually what we've done far more profoundly over 30,000 years of domestication and selective breeding is change one animal into another that is, you know, completely unrecognisable. You know, you, you have the wolf, which is a, a remarkable, uh, elusive and, and wonderful hunter. Uh, and the animal that sleeps at my feet is, is frightened of the rain and barks at bin bags. Um, you know, we, we, have, we have changed animals beyond all recognition. And what I find really interesting is that we draw a lot of distinctions, I think, and, and, and for good reasons. But, you know, people are very anxious at the prospect of using uh, deliberate fine scale genetic modification when, in fact, we have been changing things genetically for a long time. And in fact, some of the creatures we've made, if, if you said today, right, I'm going to use genetic modification to create um, a dog. And this dog breed is going to have a head that is so wide. I look brilliant, but its head will be so wide it won't be able to fit through its mother's birth canal. So they'll always have to be born by C-section. And um, also, whilst we're at it, we'll give it a really shortened snout and we'll give it really wrinkly jaws. And it will suffer probably from breathing problems uh, and get lots and lots of infections. But it'll look absolutely fantastic, right? So if if I said to you that scientists were planning to do that today, you would rightly be, um, you know, very, very concerned about this. But again, of course, what I've described is the English bulldog, and this is something that we have produced through selective breeding. So um, we've been changing life on Earth for a very, very long time. And in the last few hundred years with selective breeding, the changes that we've made have been far more profound and in some cases damaging than any of the things that scientists are, are, are talking about doing deliberately. So I think the sort of GM in the lab is, is a bit of a red herring in a sense, because when you look at the, the broader scale change across the planet, um, it, it doesn't really get a look in. And the other thing is that through the rise of domestication and selective breeding, we've completely changed the makeup of life on Earth and life's evolutionary story. So 10,000 years ago, 
if you were to go out and, and round up all of the mammalian, large mammalian biomass on the earth, and if you were to weigh it, which would be pretty difficult, but if you were able to do that, 10,000 years ago, you would find that 99% of that biomass was wild animals. Now, if you were to do the same thing again today, you'd find that 4% of that biomass would be wild animals and the remaining 96% would be domestic animals and humans in a sort of two to one ratio. So, so the other thing we see is that through the rise of domestication, somewhere along the line, we've fueled the demise of the natural world through processes such as uh, factory farming and pollution and habitat destruction and all the usual suspects. But when you kind of look around you and you see cows and sheep in the fields, I mean, they're the lucky ones because most of them are in factory farms. We, we don't automatically realise that there is a link with habitat destruction and with this changing evolutionary story and with this demise of the natural world. So, so we see this kind of 30,000 years of evolutionary change with humans at the helm uh, that has just changed things beyond all recognition. Yeah, and I suppose what we've done then is we've just distorted that balance so greatly that we probably can't restore it. Or would you sense that that, that there is an opportunity for, for us to restore some of that balance? I mean, obviously, we can't bring back, you know, huge, you know, wild um, mammals. And there, there, there's, a, there's a movement to do that, isn't there, with reintroduction of things like bison and, you know, other apex predators and things. But, 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 but do you think there's an opportunity for us to try and redress some of that balance a little bit, either by reducing the amount of, of, of selective breeding and modification or just by, by reintroduction of wild species? I, I'm a massive optimist. So, so the book is sort of quite depressing and bleak in places. Yeah, go out and buy it. But in mm. other places, it, it's... Hopefully very, very funny there. <laughs> quite joyful and quite humorous. And, and I am very much an optimist at heart. So, um, yes, we, we have sort of arrived at this predicament where we have changed um, the very fabric of life on Earth. You know, there isn't... There might be some microbe in Antarctica that, that hasn't felt um, the force of, of human change, but that innocence won't last. Everything is changing. But I don't think it is too late. You know, there are changes that we can make um, on a personal level with our life in terms of how we choose to eat, how we choose to live. But also in, in the book, I was looking at some of the, the, the remarkable conservation stories of people who go above and beyond and who are perhaps doing extreme conservation, as you like. They've gone beyond the, the tried and traditional techniques and are using remarkable methods to bring species back from the brink. Um, and, and then on the flip side to that, I sort of explored the concept of, of rewilding, which is, is basically my excuse for having a really messy garden. Um, so that, you know, what, what you realise as well is that if you can just let go a little and give space, for wild things to be wild and, and maybe give them a bit of a helping hand. You know, in, in certain cases, you may need to uh, reintroduce certain keystone species, for example. But when you do that, remarkable things start to happen. And uh, one of the places I visited for the book was the, the fabulous Nep estate in East Sussex, where sort of a, a, a decaying dairy farm was given back to nature. And through the introduction of a, you know, a handful of wild, well, domestic pigs that like to roam wild and some longhorn cattle and some deer they're now seeing the most amazing diversity like richness of biodiversity of invertebrates and vertebrates that are coming to visit the place so it, it doesn't have to be 
intensive and draining you know it can work for wildlife and it can work for us and that was one of the really joyful messages that I took from my research yes and we 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 talk about NEP a lot on blind pod and we've you know had had Izzy and others on the on the pod and I think it's it's always the hopeful message out of these conversations that actually we can have significant impact from quite small actions even if it is your untidy garden um, or what I've asked Vertical, my rewilded patch. You know, um, so we can, as 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 um, actors in this this drama, actually have quite a positive impact on on our environment and our planet as well. It doesn't always have to be negative. Um, you talk about yourself as both a kind of uh, you know a science and comedy writer. How do you get that balance between the comedic and the serious? And you know, do you sometimes think I should just chuckle this in and go back to just doing stand up? Or, or <laughs> what, what? You know, how do you, how do you how do you, how does it how does it play out in your life? And which, which side wins, or are they kind of in equilibrium all the time? They're, they're sort of in equilibrium. I mean, the lovely thing about writing books is that you're given the opportunity to to write in your own voice. So as a journalist, when you're writing for magazines, you're writing in other people's editorial styles and, and you write to what's expected from their readers. Now, with a book, you can be yourself and, and you know, that can you live or die by that, basically. So in the book, it's very much written in in my voice. And and I think that it's really I'm not very good at being serious for very long periods of time. So so that comes across in the book. But on a on a more sort of sort of on, on a more general note, I think that um just as as life is full of these really bittersweet and poignant and soul-despairing moments of darkness, we also our lives are punctuated with joy and happiness. And I think that as a writer, it's quite an interesting tool to explore because if you can combine comedy with with serious messages, mm-hmm. then um, the serious messages can make the light moments seem even lighter and more joyful. And, and the more joyful moments can actually bizarrely lend gravitas to the serious messages that you're trying to get across because you have this sort of contrast between the two. Um, and I, I find it quite easy to to find humour in things. And some things lend themselves to humour more than others. There's a whole chapter in the book about the kakapo, which is my favourite bird species. And it's this um, big, fat, flightless parrot that's um, endemic to a handful of islands off the coast of New Zealand. Uh, and what I love about it is that they've they've kind of set this whole thing up like an avian love island. So... Um, <laughs> You know, you've got these 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 birds going off to this island paradise, and uh, will they or won't they get together uh, with with suitable and uh, suitable members of the opposite sex? And what will happen if they do? And, and they're comical birds to look at, and they have this fabulous um, story. So, so sometimes there are just comedy gifts waiting waiting to be explored. And do you have an extract that really sums up? the book for for listeners that you could just share with us briefly because obviously as a result of listening to this podcast everyone is going to go out and buy life-changing quite right too uh please make sure you buy it from an independent bookseller not from a well-known online retailer um but but have you an extract you can share with us that kind of encapsulates i do and actually i have a little extract about the kakapo wonderful let me tell you about the most enigmatic charismatic and bizarre bird that I know. Imagine a large obese budgie with an identity crisis. It has wings but can't fly. It's a parrot but it's nocturnal. It makes a variety of noises none of them bird-like. It purrs like a cat 
brays like a donkey, wheezes like an asthmatic, and booms like the bass line of a house music anthem. Cat-sized, dark-clawed, and blue-beaked, it sports a verdant plumage. Its black, twinkly eyes are framed by enormous saucers of soft yellow feathers that make it look like an avian Elton John, circa 1977. Say kia ora or hello to the kakapo, one of the rarest and most intensively managed species on the planet. The world's entire population of kakapo live on a handful of islands scattered off the coast of mainland New Zealand. These are stunning remote places with craggy windswept hills and dense green forests. The valleys are carpeted with soft green moss and the trails are lined with ferns and orchids. When author and wildlife enthusiast Douglas Adams tracked them down for his 1989 radio documentary Last Chance to See, he claimed not just that the curious creatures had forgotten how to fly, but that they had forgotten they had forgotten how to fly. When alarmed, a kakapo will sometimes run up a tree, then launch itself from a branch with all the elan of a world-class base jumper. With wings outstretched and gravity calling, what happens next has been described by some as gliding, by others as controlled freefall. Adams, however, said the kakapo flies like a brick. (laughs) It says it all. Thank you, Helen. That was wonderful. Um, I have to ask you, because it's something that always intrigues me when I speak to to, to authors and writers, where where do you write? I mean, do you write in a kind of closed space in your study or do you just write at the kitchen table or or wherever you happen to find yourself? Where's where's your... I, I, I write, and I wish I didn't do this, I write in my head when I'm half awake and half asleep. So I spring awake at night thinking about things that I want to write down and then I annoy my husband by having a pad of paper next to the bed, which I scribble on. And then during the day, I have a little study at the back of my house that overlooks um, the garden with our various animals. And I tend to write at my desk with either my dog at my feet or more often than not, the dog sort of, he's quite needy. So he'll sort of jump on my lap and then he'll drape himself over my arms. So I'll be typing at my uh, laptop with this, with this dog sort of draped <laughs> over my arms. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and I rather like that. I like that. So I sort of have my my doggy muse at my side whilst I'm writing. Well, we we can't we can't part without asking you a what kind of dog you've got and b what he's called because this is a dog theme for our podcast at the moment. Uh, yeah. He so he is a cockapoo. So uh, he's a hybrid. Um, I talk a lot about hybrids in the book. He's a hybrid. He's a very healthy hybrid. I'm all for outbreeding of dog breeds, which is mm. what a cockapoo is. Uh, and he's called and he sadly has a joke name, but it's a joke that it's what comedians call a one percenter that that most people just will not be interested in or not get but his name is Higgs the dog particle only a science comedian come up with that it's brilliant it's absolutely perfect it says it all thank you so much we must close I'm afraid because we could talk to you all day but can I ask you do you have a call to action for people as a result of the work that you're doing in the writing and your wider experience of science and nature and and if so what would it be what would you have us do as a result of hearing you well, I think I think one of the things that I realised is in writing the book is that people are sort of blind to long term change. So we we don't realise, for example, um, 
how impoverished we, we we remember we look out at the world today and we see what there is so I have a, a Budlia bush outside my window that I'm looking at now and I can't see any butterflies on it and I remember when I was a child the Budlia bush outside the house where I grew up and it was covered in butterflies so I look out now and what I see is a state of impoverishment but what I don't realize is that when I was a kid butterflies were already in decline so we have this inability I think to process change on longer than a generation and that's a problem because it means going forwards we don't really care very much beyond maybe thinking about our children or maybe our grandchildren and I think my call to arm would be to to think about long-term change and the importance of it and the importance of making a difference now in how you live your life in who you decide to support politically if you care about environmental change so that we really are thinking not just about our children and our grandchildren, but about um, leaving uh, a world that is wild and lovely and a place where we want to live and that nurtures us for many, many generations into the future. Helen, thank you. Thank you so much for, for joining us and thank you for, for sharing Life Changing with us. Um, we wish you huge luck with the prize um, and it, Life Changing is published by Bloomsbury and you can find details of it and all the other shortlisted books on the Wayne White Prize website and on our website theplanetpod.com where you can find an extract um, and subscribe to Planet Pod. It's been great having you on, thank you Helen. Really, Thank talking. you so much, thank you, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, And uh, listeners, go out and buy the book, that's all I have to say to you. It's a wonderful book, thank you and goodbye. You've been listening to the stories behind the books, the Planet Pod series on the Wainwright Prize 2020. You can find details of all the shortlisted authors on the Wainwright Prize website or on our Planet Pod website. Do look them up and find out more. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.